This month, we are going to jump into the book of Psalms and look at how the Word of God can stir up fresh joy in Jesus. And so this sermon series is entitled Delighting in the Word. Delighting in the Word. If you're like me, like most other believers I know, this past week you've probably spent some time looking for a new Bible reading plan. Now, maybe it's the one that we've put out there as a, as a church to do through uh, 260 days, giving us some grace for some of those other days. Maybe it's one you've chosen on your own to do. Uh, but I imagine you probably at least thought about starting a new Bible reading plan. For some reason, the beginning of the year usually stirs up those thoughts, not just only about losing weight uh, with eating well or exercising, eating everything that we didn't eat, the past couple weeks during the holiday season, that has to be set aside. And also the thoughts of what it will our scripture intake be throughout this year. Even though most of us failed at some point in 2018 to keep those resolutions or to keep that plan that we've set out last January, the turning of the calendar to 2019 usually stirs up hopes that this year will be different. This year, we will finally lose those extra 15 pounds we've been trying to lose for the last three years. Uh, this year will be different, and that will actually take our tax return and put it into savings rather than blowing it on other things. Uh, this year will be the year that we will be consistent in our daily times of worship in the Word and in prayer. 2019 will be different. At least, that's what we hope for on Tuesday morning. But now... Six days later, many of us have already failed in our quote-unquote resolutions or plans, haven't we? Uh, there's been something that's come up. Kid gets sick in the middle of the night, and so we don't get up like we said we were going to every morning at 5.30 to spend some time in the Word. Instead, we slept in until 8.30, and we were late for work. Something has taken place. We've failed. Some of us give up at that point. Some of us never even try. But this morning, I want to begin our new year together as a church by setting the trajectory for us this year when it comes to our intake of God's Word and the vital role it plays in our lives. Not just for us corporately, but for us, each of us individually. So that's why we're here in Psalm chapter 1 this morning. And I venture to say most of us here are pretty familiar with this book of the Bible, the book of Psalms. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, Psalms is arguably one of the most popular books in the Bible, and the whole Bible. In fact, Psalm 23 is one of those most familiar passages in all of Scripture amongst both believers and unbelievers. Nevertheless, even though most of us are well acquainted with this book, I want to take a minute to reintroduce us to this book that we're holding in our hands this morning and what we'll be studying for the next three weeks. Most of us know this book as the hymn book of the Bible. Martin Luther, however, the famous German reformer, called the Psalms the Bible in miniature. For it gives us an overview of salvation history from creation through the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. It rehearses the establishment of the tabernacle and temple, the exile of Israel due to their unfaithfulness. And it points us forward to the coming messianic redemption and the renewal of all things. Throughout these 150 songs, we find great themes of redemption, themes of suffering and persecution, the faithfulness of God and the hope of future salvation. But this book is not just a historical 
or theological instruction for us. As a matter of fact, Athanasius, one of the ancient church fathers, wrote this of the Psalms. Whatever your particular need or trouble, from this same book you can select a form of words to fit it, so that you learn the way to remedy your ill. It doesn't take long as you begin to read these Psalms to find this to be true. The Psalms are, as Sam Storms explains, a never-ending reminder that God welcomes our deepest desires. He welcomes our most unnerving fears, our anxiety, but also our adoration, our celebration, and even our confusion. You see, friends, the pages that we hold in front of us this morning not only contain the very words of God himself, but within these pages we behold and experience God himself. We experience him in all his glory, love, and beauty. These songs help us see God, not as we wish or would hope him to be, but as he actually is, as he reveals himself. Tim Keller notes, the descriptions of God in the Psalter are rich beyond human invention. He is more holy, more wise, more fearsome, more tender and loving than we would ever imagine him to be. The Psalms fire our imaginations into new realms yet guide them toward the God who actually exists. And as we just experienced in our study through the book of Exodus last year, it's in beholding God as he reveals himself, as he makes himself known, that we find him to be our delight. And so this morning as we begin our study here in Psalm 1, you can rest assured that what we will be confronted with is not merely words to study, Not merely words to know, but with God himself, who gives fresh joy. And to that end, we read here in Psalm chapter 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And this is God's holy infallible word whereby he reveals himself to us for our joy and so let's thank him for that before we continue this morning father we are are grateful that in your word you reveal yourself to us and as we open up this book of psalms as we see this hymn about your word may we see ourselves in this may we see the ways before us and see which path we're on, but most importantly, where those paths lead and where our affections are found. May they be found in you. And if they are not, as we go through the study of Psalm 1, if we find ourselves to not be on the path to joy in you, may you stir within us faith and repentance May you waken dead hearts to 
to be alive in you this morning through your word and through your voice as you speak this morning to us. In your name, amen. With the advancement of technology, especially with the GPS, now on almost every single device that we own, one of the great joys has been stolen away from us. That is asking for directions, right? Asking for directions was a joy. I mean, when was the last time you actually wrote down directions from someone to their house or a certain location where you're going to meet somebody? We now just simply put the address in our phones or uh, in our tablets or uh, whatever it is that you have on your watch, and it tells you exactly how to get to that place. It's almost too easy. We've almost completely lost the art of giving bad directions. And it truly was an art, wasn't it? I mean, we love that time when people would just give us those bad directions. They'd be telling us, all right, here's how you go. You go down the road, you turn right. No, I think it's left. And then, then they would just give up, right? And they'd say, okay, where's the napkin? Where's the receipt? I'm going to draw out the directions for you. And I always loved it when in the middle of them drawing out their directions, they would decide there was a better way to go. I mean, that was fun to watch, wasn't it? No, not at all. Uh, you want the right directions. We all want to know exactly how to get from point A to point B. And we want to get there in the shortest time possible. And so nowadays, when Google Maps gives us the option to go different ways, we usually choose the quickest route, don't we? We want the right way, the fastest way to our destination. Well, here in Psalm 1, the psalmist, who is left unnamed, introduces the entire book of the Psalms with a choice between two ways, between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. As we'll come to see, the choice here, though, is not at all like the choice Google Maps gives us. No, the routes and even their destinations are far from being the same. The choice, however, remains, will we choose the way that follows God's instruction, or will we choose the way that rejects it? Now, for most of us, this choice seems rather simple and obvious. All of our life, we've been taught God's instructions. We, we know the Bible. We know the correct Sunday school answer to that question. But notice here, as we read through this first psalm, that the psalmist is not asking our opinion of God's word. He's not asking the answer we've been taught to give. No, as he contrasts these two ways, he's getting at something far deeper. He's getting at our delight and our joy. The truth is, it's one thing to read and know God's instructions, and yet something altogether different to say you actually delight in them. And so here the psalmist lays out this one simple yet resounding truth for us this morning, that those who seek fresh joy in Jesus are those who delight in God's word. Those who seek fresh joy are those who delight in God's word. You see, the choice between these two ways has everything to do with our affections and where our affections lie. So as the psalmist beautifully lays out this before us, as he contrasts these two ways, showing us these two ways, the Sam Storms profoundly notes that there's a strategy for blessedness. And it's not mere avoidance, but 
allurement. It's not just avoiding one, but being allured to another. So we begin to see this right away in verses 1 and 2, when the psalmist begins to describe the first way, the way of the righteous. He writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is where? It's in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The psalmist begins here by explaining that the blessed or joy-filled, the the happy man is one who has a disdain for things of this world. He is one who is not easily enticed by the ways of thinking, behaving, and belonging that the world promotes. He does not accept their advice. He's not party to their ways, nor does he adopt the world's mindset and attitude. You see, his blessedness flows from a sense of well-being and rightness. This is a man who has his identity firmly established in God. For it's important to remember the context in which the psalm is given. This is first given to those who have been called out as God's chosen people, who have been given his law to guide them in the path of life, so that they might live the best way possible as his treasured possession, his holy nation, his kingdom of the priests. Remember back in Exodus 19. And so the one who is blessed here in verse 1 is the one who has seen the ways of God compared to the ways of man and his affections have been turned from this world to God in his good and right ways. So verse 2 tells us while he does not follow the ways of the world his delight is in the law of the Lord. The psalmist use of Law or Torah here in verse 2 could refer to either the Ten Commandments and the rules and regulations within the law that Moses came down from the mountain with, or generally to all of God's instructions. But it seems best to understand it to be referring to both in this case, especially since this psalm would have acted as an intro to the whole book of Psalms, and it would encourage the reader to meditate on the entire book of Psalms as the law of the Lord, as the scripture. Therefore, this phrase, law of the Lord, is, as John Stott notes, virtually equivalent to the phrase, the word of God. And so his delight is in the word of God. It's this that the happy man, the blessed man, finds delight in. Rather than associating with the ways of the wicked, the ways of sinners and scoffers, this joy-filled child of God finds delight in his word. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read verse 2, growing up, this word delight was always one of those words in the Bible that usually made me feel a, a sense of guilt, or even a certain sense of, am I missing out on something? His delight is in the law of God. Am I missing out? What? If I'm honest with you, that's not how I generally felt about God and his word. Anyone else feel that way? Have felt that way? I mean, delight was something, especially as a child, that I found in eating pizza. Uh, if you ask my daughter Chloe in eating cheese curds, playing with friends, not while sitting in a boring sermon, singing boring songs, being forced to read the Bible for a grade in school. 
I mean, that's not where my delight was found in. Truth be told, I, I still don't always feel this way about God's word, and I don't think I'm all that unusual, am I? I think we all can relate to how one author explains this feeling when he writes this. This is a stretch here for many Christians. They've grown up thinking and being taught that there's an inescapable tension, if not a contradiction, between pleasure and principles, between rejoicing and rules. And so it comes as nothing short of a jolt to read of delighting in the law of the God. I mean, we feel that jolt when we read this, don't we? So then, what then is this delight in the Word? Is this something only the psalmist can experience and feel? I mean, only truly super spiritual people understand what delighting in the law of the Lord is all about? Well, thankfully, the answer is no. Delight is not only for the super spiritual, as if that's such a thing, nor is it only for the psalmist. You see, a delight in the word of God comes only by a delight in the God of the word. To delight in his word is to delight in God. And this is the fruit of conversion. This is the blessed man, the man who has been acted upon by God. And so he dwells on that action, that saving truth. And that's where his joy resides, his delight. So the psalmist here is not advocating here for a study of the word as an end in of itself, but rather that our delight is in the word because that's how we get to know God more. Words on a page are not our aim, but the God who spoke these very words. And so I think what has happened for many of us who have grown up in the church, my, myself included, is that sadly, this book we hold in our hands has become just another book that we have on our shelves. I mean, it tells a story, and we, we know the story. We even memorize certain parts of this story, especially the ones that really get a hold of us. I mean, we have those life verses that really mean something to us. But in the end, we have failed to see the one whom the story is all about. You see, this book is not about us. Oh, but many of us open it up daily merely to find a little help for our daily lives, don't we? You see, friends, this book is not about us, it's about God. So again, Sam Storms writes, When we read the stories and hear the poetry, we tremble at, this, at his truth. The Spirit then awakens us to the beauty of the author and deepens our experience of his love. His kindness, His power, and His goodness. So you see, the man who delights in the law of the Lord is taking the law and running it back to God. And a prolonged exposure to God in His story increases our delight in Him. That's why the psalmist continues by describing how the blessed man is one who meditates day and night on the Word. This man has seen God in the Word. He has known and experienced this God's grace, and so he just can't get enough of God. He knows that at his right hands are pleasures forevermore, and so he ponders it. He pours over it. He consumes it, for its words are sweet like honey. 
He just can't get enough of the sweetness of God. He has tasted and seen that God is good. He has experienced the goodness of God, not merely as words on a page, but in full, high-definition clarity in his life. And he takes that which is true. He takes that which is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, and he thinks on these things. He humbly submits his thoughts and his will to the creator of his thoughts and his will. The opinions of the world don't stand a chance against the truth of revealed in God's word. For as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, the foolishness of God is wiser than man. The weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, church, this is the way of the righteous. The word of the God so feeds and shapes the mind and heart of those who give themselves to it that their feet are kept firmly on the path of life. Verse 3, the psalmist gives us a vivid illustration of what comes from this posture of delight and a practice of meditation. He says, this man, who again has been blessed, who finds delight and meditates on, on the word of God day and night, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The blessed man, as we'll see in, in verse 6, the righteous man bears fruit. But notice that it's not because of his effort that he bears this fruit. No, he was planted by the stream. The word planted here is a passive participle, which for some of you, doesn't mean anything at all because grammar is just not your thing. So let me explain it this way. He ain't done nothing on his own to get himself there. He was planted there by the master gardener. Planted in the exact place where he can receive the necessary nourishment needed to flourish. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. You see, what's so remarkable about the way of the righteous is that God has placed them there in His loving, sovereign grace. I mean, remember our study from Exodus last fall, the, the people of Israel, those who would be the first to sing these psalms, did almost everything possible to deter the steadfast, has said, I do promising love of God. And yet what did he do? He pursued them. He protected them. He provided for them again and again. And so this was their experience. They had been planted by the stream to be nourished by the ways of God. They had been given his instructions to flourish, to in the end prosper. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what God promises Moses' successor, Joshua. For if you would turn to Joshua chapter 1 real quick couple pages back in your Bible. Joshua chapter 1. And we hear an echo of what this psalmist says. Look at verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. You see the, the way in front of us. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate it, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. 
For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. He is like a tree planted by a stream that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, in all that he does, he prospers. This is the way of the righteous. They disdain the things of the world, but delight in the word of God. And so, in the end, they're fruitful, and their way is prosperous. He who began a good work is faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's exactly what verse 6 alludes to. When it says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, therefore they will stand complete in him in the judgment. They'll be warmly welcomed in the great cloud of righteous witnesses. Oh, what a day that will be. And so the psalmist shows us the way of the righteous. The righteous man delights in the word. And having beautifully laid out that way in the first three verses, the psalmist now presents us with a stark and concise contrast in verse 4 with the way of the wicked. The psalmist here is short and to the point. The way of the wicked needs no further explanation than the way of the wicked are not so. These two words, not so, pack a massive punch. But their purpose is to send us back up to the previous verses and to read those verses in the reverse. So we might read, the wicked man walks in the counsel of the wicked. He is the one that stands in the way of sinners. He sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is not in the law of the Lord, and he rejects it both day and night. In other words, the wicked disdain the word of God, all the while delighting in the world. The wicked are those who have no fear of God, Oh, they're not just guilty of a few sinful acts. No, they have a life marked and dominated by sin and wrongdoing. They are, as Paul explains in Romans 1, those who have exchanged God's truth for a lie. For the lies of this world, the lie of the prince of this world, the devil. It's his seductive hissing in their ears that have lured them into fully embracing his fatal ways. And so the psalmist, again, succinctly describes what will come of those who go in the way of the wicked. Through a contrasting illustration, he says in the middle of verse 4, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. One commentator notes, chaff is, in such a setting, the ultimate in what is rootless, weightless, and useless. The figure is that of winnowing in which the threshed corn is tossed up for the husk and fragments of straw to blow away, leaving behind only the grain. So while the righteous are firmly planted like trees near a stream in order to be nourished and fruitful, the wicked bear no roots and are useless, unprofitable in themselves. And as verses 5 and 6 conclude, they're easily blown away by the judgment of God and perish. The way of the wicked leads to complete ruin. They will be unable to stand in the final day and will be firmly turned away from the assembly of the righteous in Christ. On that day, while the righteous will be known as complete in him, the wicked will face the full wrath of God and perish. 
This is the way of the wicked. But notice as the psalm closes here in verses 5 and 6, there's no other way given. There's simply only two ways presented. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Oh, but haven't we tried to create our own way? And we've tried, we've hoped, we've wished for in our humanity to find and create an alternative way. A way that looks more appealing to us. A way that leads, of course, to the same end as the righteous, to fruitfulness and prospering. But a way that doesn't take the same route of delighting in these quote-unquote crusty old commands and culturally acceptable, unacceptable ways. The truth is, and always will be, there are only two ways to live. In fact, Jesus concludes his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 when he as well talks to the blessed man. He reiterates this truth when he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Again, in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the question remains, will you follow the way, the word in the flesh, the truth and the life? Will you choose the way that follows God's instructions, delighting in it, or will you choose the way that rejects it, the way that in the end perishes? For most of us here today, we've already made our decision. But you might be here this morning, and you have not. And so as we've gone through this study, you've said, you know what? Looks like I might be on the way of the wicked. If that's you today, I would ask and plead with you to turn to the way, the truth, and the life. Who came in the flesh for you, Jesus Christ. What we just celebrated in the Christmas Advent season. He came in your place. To put you on the path of righteousness, to flourishing, not for your own good, but for his glory and for your joy in him. But most of us have made that decision. Yet we still struggle with saying we truly delight in God's word, don't we? So what does this psalm then mean for us? For those of us who would say we are on the righteous path, does that mean then to condemn us? To guilt us into reading the Bible more? Is that what this psalm is all about? Because that's our duty to do so? No. I don't believe so. I believe, though, it should rightfully prompt us to reflect on our affections. Our affections for the Word and for the author of the Word and ask ourselves, do I truly delight in God's Word? You see, that we would use this psalm as a mirror by which we see ourselves more accurately. And as James says, after seeing ourselves, we would act on it. Rather than turning away, forgetting what manner of man we are, that we would find our delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of what we just heard last week. Liberty to live, freedom 
to follow God's good and righteous ways. And as we do this, we remember that in the final analysis, being the righteous man we see here in this psalm is unattainable for any of us outside of Jesus. You see, having studied Psalm 1, not only should our delight in the word increase, but our dependence on the once for all finished work of the one and only truly righteous, truly blessed man for us, Jesus Christ, that ought to increase as well. For we can never muster up enough affection, enough delight for the word on our own. Yet because of Jesus, our affections have been freed from duty to delight. See, Jesus is the one that transforms our taste buds from craving the wisdom of this world to thirsting after his wisdom and his ways. Missionary George Mueller, who lived from 1805 to 1898 and is famous for establishing numerous orphanages and relying on God for help in remarkable ways. He wrote this in a testimony about how the word of God became fresh in his life. And I think it's important and helpful for us to, to hear this this morning because, again, many of us have struggled in our delighting in the law. Knowing this was a man of God, these are the words that he said as as he wrote of what God's word had become to him. While I was staying at Nailsworth, it pleased the Lord to teach me a truth, irrespective of human instrument, instrumentality as far as I know, the benefit of which I have not lost. As more than 40 years have since passed, the point is this. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. For I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed I might in other ways seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in this world. And yet, not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, all this might not be attended to in a right spirit. Now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation on it. That thus my heart might be be might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus, while meditating, my heart might be brought into experimental communion with the Lord. You see, what he understood was that the word of God brought his soul into happiness, joy in God. Again, it wasn't just mustering up his own efforts. He was sitting and standing in the grace that had brought him liberty, freedom to delight in the rules and the laws of God. And so he went to the word and found fresh joy for the day. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, because of the freedom we now have in Christ to pursue our joy in Him, may we be a people who read the Word, 
May we be a people who meditate on the Word and memorize the Word. That we would be those who seek fresh joy in Jesus by delighting in His Word. So Father, this morning, do that in our hearts. Do that in hearts that, as the hymn says, are prone to wander. Oh, and God, we feel that. Even this last week, we have felt ourselves wander. But you've set us, those of us who have received your grace and have turned in faith and repented of our sins, we have we've been set on the way of the righteous. So may we delight in that way in your word and meditate on it. May we not wander away from it. May we hold on to it as a joy-producing element in our walk with you.